This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. When we think about the causes of violence, abuse and dysfunctional behaviour, we have to look deeper at the trauma that might have occurred generations before. Now, adverse childhood experiences can lead to intergenerational trauma if left unaddressed over the years. However, if trauma can be passed down intergenerationally, can you also foster intergenerational healing? That's something that I want to discuss today with my guests, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director of Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice, joining us all the way from Chicago in the United States. And um, Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counselling Psychologist at Thrive Well, of course, our regular partner for our Mind Matters series. Dr. Elena and Ivy, thank you so much for joining me. How are the both of you today? We're good. Thank you for having us. So I I want to sort of structure this in a way that will help people sort of be able to relate uh, to the issue of adverse childhood experiences, which maybe in itself is a a rather large concept to wrap our minds around. But if we just think about um, an incident uh, that may um, be a crime in nature or be violent in nature or um, be related to abuse or dysfunctional behaviour, as I mentioned earlier. Dr. Elena, from your work and your research, um, what kind of incidents or behaviours are you most concerned with? Well, often we see things that we find undesirable in the world, like violence. Nobody wants to see violence or suicide attempts or obesity, or chronic illness. And we see these things as not connected in any way. But several years ago, there was a study that was done through Kaiser Permanente and also through the Center for Disease Control in the United States by two doctors named Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda. And they did the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that basically looked at people who had a lot of these experiences when they were growing up of chronic, of having a chronic dysfunction within the home or of seeing violence or experiencing a parent with mental illness. And what happened was they ended up having a hard time in adulthood. And so when they started interviewing people, they found 10 very common childhood adversities, such as physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, um, or physical or emotional neglect, or five kinds of household dysfunction, such as loss of a parent, having a family member go to prison, uh, um, a caretaker that abuses substances like drinks too much or uses drugs, Um, or a parent with mental illness, or witnessing domestic violence in the home. And what they found was that when these things were present, that basically people's chances of getting all sorts of things went much higher. For example, they found that childhood adversity, number one, most of us have childhood adversity, and that people with who experience Six of those 10, I just said 10 of them, people who had six of the 10 
die on average 20 years sooner than people with zero childhood adversities. And so you can see that there is a long-lasting possible uh, effect of having gone through childhood trauma. How do we make that link? Um, is it causative? Uh, what is it about these 10 adverse childhood experiences that reduce life expectancy, increase these chances of disease and, and other dysfunctional uh, you know, impacts? I'm really glad you asked. I don't think that there's anything magic about these 10 because they have replicated this study in different places. And what they have found is that there's nothing magic about these 10. They were just very common in the people that they interviewed at the beginning. But for other, like for people in other countries, for example, being having been a refugee, having um, lost a parent or a family member to murder, feeling that you live in an unsafe neighborhood, having experienced racism, those are similar kinds of adversity um, that you can imagine, like if you've ever had somebody go through a serious car accident or if you've lost a family member because they had to move away, those are things that can also have similar adversity. And what they found was that just as, you know, it makes life harder as you go forward, there are also things that can um, help to address those adversities and actually reverse them. So it's not all bad news, but it is important for us to understand the the power of childhood adversity. Like just for example, like somebody with zero adverse childhood experiences, about one in 16 will be a smoker. Whereas if you have very high childhood adversity, one in six will be a smoker. Or let's say if you have zero adversity, one in 69 will be alcoholic. Whereas if you have very high adversity, it's one in six. So they show you with the trends that adversity makes life more difficult. And it's because as you get older, you start to try to cope with the adversity that you go through as a child. And sometimes people choose negative coping mechanisms to deal with the things that they have gone through. Mm. And it's the negative coping mechanisms, such as use of substances or gambling or having like uncareful sexual relationships that lead to earlier death. But that's not just because you've gone through trauma. Many people have. There is a way that you can cope in a healthier way, which will prolong your life. Mm. And that's um, sort of the flip side of what we want to discuss today, right? Um, but Ivy, from your work with Thrive Well, and I know that you do work with um, low-income, what we call B40 communities in Malaysia, vulnerable communities as well. What would you say are some um, experiences and factors that we should be cognizant of uh, when we look at uh, something like that in Malaysia? I think in Malaysia, when we work with the um, communities, um, the PPRs or the 
B40. So we are highly attuned to their actual needs as well. So before we actually go into the community, we also do a community needs assessment to kind of understand um, to what certain extent the families or the communities are going through um, the challenges. So we look at what we call the social determinants of health as well. So by looking at these factors, we are more targeted in our approach, we're more targeted in our programs, and we then meet the needs of these um, individuals or families or youth that are impacted and affected by ACEs. Uh, so these are some of the key components uh, we're looking to for accessibilities, if they can have or resources, supports, networks, any other partners that are working with this community. So these are all important factors that we look into um, when we work with our communities in Malaysia. Yeah. So when we talk about social determinants of health, it could be, um, you know, income level, um, socioeconomic status, like poverty, or whether they have equitable access to education, right, and community spaces or whatever. Um, Dr. Lena, would that, um, or the lack thereof, perhaps, then um, be an adverse childhood experience in itself? Yes, I mean, I think that communities are changing as especially as their greater and greater urbanization, industrialization, then we we start to lose more of the social fabric um, that maybe some people used to grow up with. And it's it, the thing that really helps to make people stronger is to have strong in relationships with people in your lives with your neighbors, with your family members, um, with people from school and just in your neighborhood in general. And so I think it's so important to think about what, how society is changing and how that can actually weaken the relationships that we have. All right, let's go for a quick break and we'll continue this conversation when we come back for our Mind Matters series today. We are discussing adverse childhood experiences, how trauma actually comes from your childhood, your background, growing up in your family and community, what were the experiences you were exposed to and how that kind of trauma can traverse generations on Zoom with me today, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director from Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice in the United States, and Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counseling Psychologist at ThriveWell. We'll be right back on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Joining me for the Mind Matters series today, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director at the Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice. Joining us all the way from the United States. And Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counseling Psychologist from Thrive Well. We're discussing adverse childhood experiences and how... Um, going from a major study that was conducted in the United States that looked at certain common adverse childhood experiences, how these um, can uh, have severe negative impacts on an individual and gen for generations after that, uh, if left unaddressed, um, if not supported um, with strong relationships uh, and with positive coping mechanisms. So I guess we want to sort of um, get to something more positive uh, in our conversation later on. But I also wanted to ask Dr. Elena, 
whether um, you talked about, I guess, maybe a more behavioral aspect. If you're constantly exposed to um, adverse childhood experiences without um, some sort of supportive um, factors around you, um, you might turn to negative coping mechanisms like substance abuse, risky behaviors, and so on. But is there a physiological aspect to it as well in terms of the effects of these experiences and trauma on the brain? Yes, of course. Um, there is. You're, when you're born, your body wants, your brain starts to wire in a way that will keep you alive. And if you are born into an unsafe situation, you will constantly be looking for the exits to places or trying to figure out how you can just get through to survive dangerous situations. Whereas if your body, if your brain is wired to a safe world, then you're going to be far more relational. You're going to be, you're not going to be worried about like just trying to escape a situation to survive it. You're going to be able to relax and learn. And because people experience different kinds of trauma, they're very different in different situations. People that, for example, experience a lot of, say, violence in their home. It's very difficult for children that are experiencing violence at home to be very good students because they're, you know, they're just trying to get through the day and they're trying to cope with all the things that are going on in their home. And it's very difficult to relax and to be able to connect with your peers in a positive way and learn. And so, of course, it's going to affect the way that you experience your life and the world and the way you perceive things around you. Mm. I also read that um, there are epigenetic consequences. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. So epigenetics is basically a science that is developing that helps us to understand how what we experience can affect us intergenerationally. So, for example, there was a study about mice that grew up in, and they were in a situation where um, they were living in this little mouse colony, but they were, there was an electric shock that they would get through the floor of their cage called the scent of cherry blossoms. And so what happened was um, the mice, whenever they would smell that smell, they would start to pile on top of each other and tremble. And even if they did not get shocked, they would still pile on top of each other and tremble because they knew they were going to get shocked. Okay, so that's basic pairing of like cause and effect. But what happened was then they bred these mice and they took their pups, their offspring, and they raised them in a different lab. And what they found was that even with these mice that had never been shocked, that had never been raised by parents that had been shocked, whenever they smelled the cherry blossom smell, they would pile on top of each other and tremble so that they could protect themselves from the bottom of the cage. And that's the way that our, our um, experiences are encoded in our genetics and passed down to our offspring to try to protect them 
from the negative things that we have experienced in life. Mm. But what's also interesting is there have been other studies. I mean, they've done studies with humans and they found that people who have been through very negative experiences up to four generations later experience heightened anxiety or heightened depression after cataclysmic events like genocide or dislocation from country or, you know, like very grave uh, political situations. And so, um, yes, so that's the way that epigenetics is passed down to warn us. But in terms of the way that it can protect us, there was also a different study with rats, where basically they found that there were rats that were very attentive parents, and they were very sweet with their offspring, and they were they showed a lot of physical affection, and they modeled good behavior to their offspring. And then there were other rats that were not good parents. They would bite and reject their offspring. What they found when they looked at the brains of the offspring was that the rats that were raised by the very affectionate, kind parents, they were able to deal much better with changes in life. They were able to get through mazes. Like if you change their environment, like you just totally change their environment, they would get less stressed. They would be able to problem solve better. And they would have less cortisol going through their body than the mice that had been abused. The mice that had been abused were very anxious and had difficulty with any kind of change. And you can see this in humans as well with people who have been mistreated um, that it's it's very difficult to just change a situation or to allow them to cope with negativity. Whereas people who have more greater emotional resources because they have been treated well they're able to deal with the kinds of transitions and bumps and bruises that we get during just the difficulties in life. So, so you can see where you pass down warning for danger, but also protection um, through love and care. Yep. So Ivy, that's exactly it, right? Because we all go through adversities. We're all going to experience some sort of conflict, um, difficult situations, death, loss, um, uh, in, in major challenges as well. But it's the, it's it's that sort of um, environment and the buffers in place that can make the difference between adversity and trauma. And I'm guessing that's a big part of Thrive Well's work when it comes to working with communities. Uh, to develop parenting skills, right? Can you share a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm, yeah. So just kind of also echoing back on Dr. Elena's term about um, trauma. So yes, when we work with our communities, we understand that trauma wears a growth in the brain. So if anyone who goes through trauma in the community, um, it's like it's easily more easily for them to get knocked into that fear groove. And when there is an actual threat. So sometimes, for example, we will be more attuned to the communities for parenting courses or parenting programs before we go into and deliver the program. We are understanding what's happening in the community. So we co-create this program, but by understanding, for example, if a parent was sharing with us that sometimes a teacher or a colleague um, was overly uh, aggressive with their child or um, they, they, they just feel that they are just um, not understanding the circumstances. So we then 
start to recognize what's going on with the situation. Has the child um, been going through a different kind of um, adverse experiences in school? Was there bullying? Was there support in the family system? So instead of just um, how how we put it, instead of just going in and ask um, what's going on with you or what's wrong with the teacher or what's wrong with the child, we go into and ask what has happened to you, what has happened to the mom and dad, what has happened to the siblings, if any. So we try to look into these um, um, lens and try to change the reaction or behavior of these um, parents or the children who has been, I would say, um, for example, taken advantage in schools. And by doing so, we then shift the lens and actually understand how can we tap into these resources um, from the parents' perspective and then create these parenting programs that are more meaningful and that is more connected with them to also promote social connectedness. So when we do this program, we look into all these uh, experiences that has happened in the community and at the same time, it is more effective to provide these, um, I would say, um, responses to the family members by just providing them, I would say, um, better resources and better competency. So by understanding what happens in the community, um, our community health workers, our mental health practitioners are able to come up with these parenting programs that are more meaningful and at the same time, um, less, I would say, um, punitive in the approaches and more trauma-informed. Mm. Yeah, Dr. Elena, could you add to that? Because I think this comes into basically what help and um, resources can we offer to people who are stuck in the cycle of intergenerational trauma? So just understanding the way that adverse childhood experiences affect people really helps people to respond with compassion rather than with punishment or judgment. And that is really important to start changing people's perspectives so that they respond in a way that is more productive. And then there was a study that was done in Washington state that was very interesting that showed what really helps people who have high adverse childhood experiences. And they, they called it help that helps. And so the help that helps were four things. One is to, to offer or to get, you must receive um, support and hope based on your relationship with others. So you don't even have to, you know, have somebody who's giving you money or, or, or food or that. Just having people in your life that you know that you care about you, it makes a huge difference, particularly in things like mental health, um, physical health, um, and your general well-being. Another Another piece, the second help that helps is having two or more people who can give you help when you really need it. Like if you need a ride somewhere in an emergency or if you need help moving houses or something like that, having two or more people in your life, it actually reverses the effects of adverse childhood experiences. And so when you start to see like, People who have a lot of childhood adversity and they have high mental illness, rates of mental illness or depression, when you have support, hope, and help, you see those types of um, symptoms um, completely reverse, which is incredible. 
The third kind of help that helps is called community reciprocity. And what it means is like, if you, it's the village, right? Community reciprocity means, okay, I'll watch your children if you watch my children. Or I'll take your kids to, to school or to the sports game if you take mine. It's just sharing in all of the duties of caring for the community. That's community reciprocity. And the fourth um, thing that really helps is called social bridging. And social bridging means reaching outside one's immediate circle of friends to help someone who is not in that circle. Like if I have access to say, let's say, for example, Ivy needs a doctor and she really needs a specific kind of doctor. And I happen to know that kind of doctor. I can introduce her to that and it's going to really help her. And it's something that she didn't know before. Or if I need something that I don't have access to, but Ivy does, she can give me the help that I need. So social bridging is the type of resource sharing that also helps in a huge way. And in a way that's, it's all, it's, it all seems very intuitive as well, right? It comes back to a very communal um, and uh, it's about building relationships and uh, family bonds and communities. Yes, but it's like it's the science behind what you know in your heart. Yeah. Like, for example, people that don't have support and hope, like they just have pretty bleak lives and they don't have people in their lives who are really giving them the support they need. At least 40% of them will experience poor mental health, right? But if once you add that support and hope, guess what? It goes down to under 10%. So you get this huge drop um, just because people have support and hope. And it's, it is so simple that people can't believe how incredibly effective it is. Even poor health. You think of things like diabetes or heart disease or lung disease. You think of those things as just biological illnesses. But when people have poor health and they don't have support, about 25% of them have very serious illness and, and, and um, symptoms. But once you introduce support and hope, the serious and persistent symptoms drop to 10%. That's a huge decrease, mm. all from just getting support and hope. And can you share, Dr. Elena, how this might look, um, whether it's being done, say, in the United States or anywhere? Um, because what we want to do is then shift uh, away from the approach of, for instance, dealing with um, people uh, or, or rather helping people with mental health conditions now is a very clinical approach or um when addressing people who have become involved in some kind of dysfunctional behavior or crime, it's a very um, punitive justice approach. Um, how could you share some ways that this would be done differently? Actual examples, perhaps. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. There was a study that was done in Washington State where they looked at the percentage of different kinds of illnesses that were attributable to childhood adversity. And when you talk about mental illness, they found that 
of persistent mental illness could be attributed to childhood adversity. 69%. And then what they did was they started educating a number of the poorest um, counties within this one state, Washington state, and they started educating many of the stakeholders, whether it be schools, social service support, social workers, that sort of thing. And what they found was that when they focused on educating just regular people in the community, that it really reduced serious mental illness by a lot. Like, for example, in the counties that got the training, serious mental illness was um, at 4.4% versus 16% in the counties that did not have the training. And then for um, just, let's say, depression, this is not serious mental illness, just depression, they found that in the areas that did not get the training, that 43% of the population experienced regular bouts of depression. 43%, that's huge. But with the education, that number was lowered to 28% in the counties that got the education. Mm. And these are not, we can't look at mental health as something just for clinicians to solve. When we are good to each other and we understand how powerful we can be um, in terms of helping each other to live better lives, we are so powerful to be able to reverse mental illness, to reverse physical illness, and to make our communities stronger. And when we avoid or can completely um, stop adversity from happening to children, then we make a generational effect of a whole generation of children that will experience less mental illness, less physical illness, and better social adjustment. Hmm. Ivy, can you share as well um, outcomes that you've seen from uh, the work ThriveWell's been doing? Um, I think in our community work, so we have been actively engaging in various communities, in our PPRs, in our communities with the B40 family. So through our programs like KAMI, which is family focused and also um, youth focused. And also we have uh, found that a lot of this um, community uh, work that we do, when we then send our community health workers into the communities to actually build the trust, build the connectedness uh, with them, they are actually more receptive to receiving or even increasing the health-seeking behavior, I would say, to then look uh, into seeking professional help for therapy. So a lot of these um, work that we have rolled out in a community engagement, we don't just send mental health practitioners. We also have community health workers our social development practitioners, we're part of a very inclusive team and we understand that by just doing so, we cannot just stay in the office. We have to go down to the community and look into what are their needs. So I think that Dr. Elena mentioned about this is a very community um participatory um, kind of approach. So we have to actually work together from all folks of uh, multidisciplinary. So we then um, do these programs. Uh, that's the first one I share with Kami. So we also have um, the other program called Brace or Brave. So these two programs, we provide um, 
trauma-informed uh, awareness skills and also adverse childhood experiences, um, knowledge transfer. So these are important knowledge and I would say skills that is very helpful for social educators and also um, people in the healthcare services sector. So they are experiencing a lot of these um, day to day in, in their work, um, you know, dealing with a lot of these um, beneficiaries that we work with. So these are also some of the things that we try to engage uh, in our work with the community, not just focusing on the, I would say, um, community itself, we also support the supporters. So these are some of the, I would say, outcomes that we've seen that um, people are more um, engaging and more, I would say, compassionate when they're educated, when they learn better, they do better. So a lot of education around these topics of um, how important adverse childhood experiences is uh, impacting the community and also impacting the people that you work with. Yeah. All right. On Mind Matters today, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director at the Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice, and Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counseling Psychologist from Thrive Well. We're discussing how trauma can be passed down intergenerationally, but so can healing. So we'll continue this conversation when we come back from a quick break on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living. I'm T. Xiao Ik. On Zoom today with me, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director at the Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice, and Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counselling Psychologist at Thrive Well. I'm getting their perspectives for our Mind Matters discussion today about adverse childhood experiences which can lead to intergenerational trauma. Trauma that's passed down from one generation to another, from parents to children and as those children grow up to have their own kids um, the cycle goes on but the cycle can be broken um, as we have been discussing with the right social support system and connections. Dr. Elena, what are some other touch points that uh, you might see this approach being urgently important? Um, people in crisis, for instance, um, would, for instance, bringing this approach into work with um, people in prison, um, you know, how would that look like? Well, I, I do a lot of work in prisons and I think we... Um in the United States have created prisons that are very, very punitive and that have very little room for people to process the trauma they have been through. What's interesting is that people in prison are some of the most traumatized people anywhere and have been through a lot of childhood adversity. And what I have found is that people are very thirsty for safe spaces where they can unpack the trauma that they have been through. And when they are able to unpack the trauma that they have been through in a safe space, they're able to really transform and respond differently to the triggers uh, that they have in life. Whereas they may respond violently if somebody insults them, once they're able to unpack their trauma and think differently about their, the things that trigger them, they're able to respond calmly and to help other people around them do the same. And so I think it's very transformational to be able to have 
safe spaces where you can tell the truth about your life to people who care about you. Um, what have you observed in terms of reception towards this mindset shift? Um, you know, the reason I ask that is because while we agreed that um, a lot of the things you described is intuitive and s- simple, not simple to do though, um, but but it strikes uh, at our very hearts, right? And this is what we've always wanted as families and as communities, but also collectively, it seems so difficult to address adversity. Um, we, we perhaps try to hide it away. Um, we still adopt punitive approaches. Um, have you found that to be a barrier to creating um, this uh, change of mindset? Well, I think that's why programs like this are so important to get the basic information out there because when people hear it, it generally resonates with people because most of us have been through some sort of trauma or something that's been very difficult or challenging. And if we look back on our lives and think, what allowed us to mature or to heal it's generally our relationships with people who care about us and so becoming that for other people is really transformational and i think that just knowing that helps people to understand in a more or react and respond in a more compassionate way i think that in the past we would think that when people behave badly, we need to treat them very harshly so that they learn their lesson and even yell at people or hit them. And that only cements people's trauma and keeps them from being able to transform in a more positive way. If somebody has gone through something difficult If we are like yelling at them, that's only making their brain produce more um, stress hormones, which make it very hard to calm down and to be rational. If instead we speak in a calm voice and we wait until we ourselves are calm in order to discuss what's going on, this helps to get to a better place more quickly. Ivy, in Malaysia, where do you see us being able to introduce um, changes, systemic changes, um, so that we can, um, you know, adopt this approach? Uh, where and where do you think it is actually most needed right now? Mm. So at Trifwell, so we do practice um, what we call the trauma-informed care approach, TIC. So in TIC, we adopt this realize, recognize, respond, and resist re-traumatization in our ongoing clinical services and our advocacy work, initiatives, research projects, and also community development efforts. So we realize that if our vision is actually to build a socially resilient system or community, we need to move beyond just the treatment model of mental health. And we use trauma-informed lens to kind of improve protective factors that brings people access accessing the mental health services. So what we feel like by using the guiding principles of this trauma-informed lens, it's, it's first about to understand the trauma and stress. 
how it affects all of us, as Dr. Elena has shared. And it's just not about a group of us traumatized people there and a group of us here trying to help them. In fact, each and every one of us have a stake in trying to mitigate these effects of adversities and trauma. So when we understand the brain science, as how Dr. Elena has shared, we can actually understand the shift of our own responses. We are more compassionate, we are more um, empathetic towards the situation. So um, particularly in TriFell, we also invest in a lot of learning and development for our team members to ensure that they have a good foundation in trauma-informed care. So this is mainly to, to, to improve the education, also sharing uh, these knowledge across um, the initiatives that we are actually rolling out. So systematically, I would feel that um, there will be a lot of radical collaboration. I would say we cannot do this alone. Again, it's also a community effort um, throughout the, um, the systems that we have in Malaysia, for example, cross-sector collaboration. It will have to involve government and NGOs. We need to foster collaborations between like Ministry of Health, Ministry of Women, Family and Children, non-profit government um, you know, organizations, and also, for example, um, the community itself to achieve um, health equity in our diverse communities. So that's one sector. So we also have to look into policy and legislation. So developing ACEs and trauma-informed policies and implement these policies that integrate ACEs findings and researches to designing all the welfare systems and education and in fact also our justice systems, right? So for example, um, when it comes to fund, I know that in California, there is the Mental Health Services Act Fund. So this is a tax and individuals or folks who make over a million dollars. So there's a 1% tax and that tax goes into a fund which is the Mental Health Services Act. And within that fund, there's a different mechanism to pay for mental health programs that are not covered through insurance or medical, which typically requires diagnosis. So funds that cover prevention programs, programs as such, um, will prevent people or community from potentially going into a full-blown diagnosis. So ultimately, it does take a collective effort to advocate for policy changes to improve our mental health funding and accessibility. The final part is training and capacity building of interdisciplinary collaboration. Again, promoting collaboration among various sectors such as healthcare, education, social services. Um, this is important for us to provide a holistic needs of individuals who are also impacted by ACEs. So these are some of the, I would say, action items needed in the systemic change. Yeah, Dr. Elena, you you um, were fully supportive of some of um, what Ivy said. Anything you'd like to add? <laughs> I love I love so much that Ivy made the leap between interacting on an individual basis of an individual who went through trauma and looking at policy. Because if we really want to make widespread change, we need to also make compassionate policy. And I love the example that she gave, but I'd like to give another example too. In the United States, we tend to be very punitive. We have a lot of prisons and we are like 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And it's a shame because it doesn't make us safer. And so one of the things that the people in Washington state did was they started looking at the intergenerational harm that is caused when a parent goes to prison because that parent is not there to earn an income or to raise the child or to be in their lives. And so for many people who are um, parents who take care of their children on a regular basis, 
they're given an option to be able to, instead of going to prison, they're able to just serve a different kind of sentence within their homes. And what their sentence, um, part of their sentence, is that they have to take their kids to school, they need to eat dinner with their children, read to their children, help their children with homework. And guess what? When these are the types of sentences that are handed down, you end up supporting a stronger generation that comes in after instead of just recreating this cycle of incarceration. Mm. And that is compassionate policy. And I think that when you know better and you start to learn the science behind this, we need to apply it to the kinds of rules, regulations, policies, and practices that happen within a whole society. And finally, Dr. Elena, you used the word reverse. Can we really break the cycle? Because we talked about intergenerational trauma. Um, have we seen that it will that all the positive things we can do can actually just then end the trauma with that generation? I think that many people do reverse the trauma and maybe not 100%, but there is something called post-traumatic growth. And when people are able to really take some time to unpack what happened to them, like for example, I work with a number of people who have been in prison for 10 to 30 years. And in, and many of them have been locked up since they were children, since they were 15 years old. And they're still in prison when they're 35 or 40, and then they get out of prison and they've never lived as an adult in the world. But because they have been able to form good relationships with people they trust, and they're able to walk through some of the trauma that they've experienced, they're much more able to go into the world and actually get, have success getting a job and living independently and having good relationships with their families or loved ones. And that is a beautiful thing. It's a testament to what can happen if we connect to each other in a meaningful and caring way. It makes a safer, better world when we interact with each other that way. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today, Dr. Elena Quintana, Executive Director at Adler University's Institute on Public Safety and Social Justice, and Ivy Tan, Clinical Director and Counseling Psychologist from Thrive Well. We've been discussing adverse childhood experiences on today's episode of Mind Matters, right here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.